Well, uh, I have some bad news, some sad news. Um, This is week number six. This is the end of the series on grace, okay? All together now. Oh, dang, yeah. But I have good news. You ready? The good news is we're starting a new series next Sunday. And it's, it's called AHA. Say it, say it with me. <gasps> yeah, yeah, AHA. Uh-huh. And what it's going to do is this. It's going to explore what happened the very day you became a follower in Jesus Christ. What happened to you the very day you came to Christ in faith? Like the day you came to Christ in faith. You may know it, you may not. You were forgiven. You were adopted. You were justified, declared right before God. You are redeemed, bought with the blood of Christ. There's certain things that happened. There are other things that you, you don't even realize happened, but you are positionally sanctified, set apart by God for his use. And in the midst of that, you're saying, I, I didn't even know that. It's, there's things that we're going to learn together and explore together. The very day you trusted Christ, that'll be the series in July, Lord willing. So come next Sunday, we'll start the first weekend of AHA. But I wanted to conclude, because we have so much great music with the uh, Grace series, I wanted to conclude by just starting with a story. And the story takes us to the song, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound That Saved a Wretch Like Me. The guy who wrote those words and uh, put together that song that became perhaps the most beloved song in all of world history, that guy's name is John Newton. Lived in England in the 1700s. John Newton is his name. A week ago, I did a funeral uh, for a firefighter and a traditional firefighter funeral. And you can guess what was there. There were bagpipes off in the distance and they played Amazing Grace. You've seen it before on television and you've seen it in the movies and uh, in specials. And it just seems to be, it seems to be a musical number. Everybody knows at least one stanza, two, and maybe two or three stanzas. It is traditionally known, it's just a great song, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound. Well, John Newton grew up in a Christian home. His mother was a believer in Jesus, and she taught him the Bible as a little kid. But he, it didn't stick with him at the time. And at the age of seven, his mother passed away, and so that influence was bad. His dad was a sailor, and he had a liking to that. And and so the Bible didn't stick, but this wild kind of adventurous life did. And so at the age of 11, John Newton joined a company that would take him out on the sea, on the open sea, out of England, going towards Africa. He joined the staff uh, on a ship and became a worker and then summarily was fired because he was pernicious and, and cantankerous and he was nasty. This is a teenager. And he didn't follow orders, and so they just threw him off the ship. They didn't like him, so he got fired. He got hired by another company, and that company wasn't very good to him either, and he wasn't very good to them, and so he bolted. He actually abandoned ship, and when they caught him, they threw him in stocks, and then they flogged him. This is a teenage kid. They flogged him, threw him in irons, and he eventually convinced his superiors on the ship company, transfer me to another ship if you'll just stop holding me in irons, I'll work on a slave ship. And they said, well, that's a deal. And so they put him on a slave ship, and his job then was to sail down from England, down the west coast of Africa. And as they went down there, there was an island there where there was a man who who owned property on the island, and he had slaves working there on a lemon tree 
uh, kind of a plantation. And they would bring slaves back, and they would also bring back product, um, uh, fruits, and vegetables back to England. By, by, the, time, by the time Newton was uh, an adult, he would look back at those years, and these are his words, and by the way, I'm quoting really from Christianity Today's Christian History um, publication. He would write about those years in his life. He said, I sinned in high hand. In other words, I really sinned. And he would later write, and I made it my study to tempt and to seduce others. That's the way he viewed his life. Well, with this slave trader, he would go down the coast of Africa and bring slaves back to England, which was quite legal, but quite unethical, quite immoral, but still legal in that day. And, uh, and, and uh, Newton would transfer to another company, and that company, um, went on one of these trips, ran into a storm. And they ran into a storm while Newton was on the ship, and down below, he was reading a book entitled The Imitation of Christ by a guy by the name of Thomas A. Kempis. And in that book, they write uh, that Kempis wrote this, there is no certainty to the, to the continuance of life. In other words, you could die at any time. And that struck uh, John Newton. And he was converted in the midst of the storm. And you would be too if you went through a storm like that. But he would later say about himself, I cannot consider myself to having been a believer in a full sense of the word, end of quote. And we've all been there. We say, I believe, but help my own unbelief. I don't really get all that I'm supposed to believe. But he became a follower of Christ, but he continued in the slave trading business. Finally, he left that for an office job in 1755, and he would hold Bible studies in his office in Liverpool. And then finally, he was influenced by some brothers by the name of Wesley's, uh, John and Charles Wesley's, uh, uh, Wesley brothers, and, and they were methodical stu- students of the Word of God, along with another guy by the name of George Whitfield, be the art equivalent of Billy Graham today. And he studied... Um, their works, and he became very committed to the scriptures, although he stayed in the, in the job of trading slaves and being involved in the business. He found it to be deplorable, and he had to get away from it somehow. It was during that segment of his life that he, he finally resigns, and he goes to school on the Bible, and a group ordains him and gives him a parish to pastor. But he knows this awful secret about his life, this awful past. And so it makes sense. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch. That's what he believed about himself, a wretch like me. That was not hyperbole, it wasn't exaggeration. And those were the words he wrote with, a, with another guy who had begun um, to write poetry and the two of them together began to write Christian songs, and as they did, Amazing Grace emerged from that. Later in his life, he would find it repugnant. It would just incendiary the thought that he actually traded slaves, and that he treated human life that way. And so in 1787, late in his life, he would write thoughts upon the African slave trade, and that piece of, of writing, that writing that he, he, uh, he, he put out, actually would help William Wilberforce, who was a young man in the congressional leadership in England at the time. And of course, you know the story of William Wilberforce. Wilberforce actually led the charge to end slavery in England. He said about this, 
and I quote, a business at which my own heart now shudders. He, he couldn't believe he was involved in it. His own heart shuddered at the thought of it. And the recollection of that chapter in his life never left him, even in his old age. And long after they asked him, you should retire, he said, how can I retire? I still have breath, and I hate that so very much. As long as I have breath to speak, I have to speak against it. Now, I tell you that whole story to say this. I don't know your past. I only know Newton's because he published it. He let it be known. I don't know your past. You don't know mine. I do know this, though. We are all people in desperate need of grace. And I don't know your past in that I don't know your sins. You don't know mine. Sometimes I'm not even sure I know my own sins. Even when I know my own sins, I don't know the depth of them. And Newton seemed to know more of the depth of his own sin. I do know this, that we desperately, desperately need to know that God's grace is deeper and wider. It is certainly greater. It is truly. And so, Father in heaven, as we open your word now, may you open our hearts to be people of grace, only matched by being also people of truth. So strong in the truth and stand for what is right and just and above reproach. But maybe be just as strong to stand for the grace that is ours in Christ. Forgiving people. Forgiving ourselves. Giving people room to grow as we give ourselves room to grow. Because you have done that for us. We pray this in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. If you have that Bible, go with me to Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, I'm going to give to you seven real benefits today of grace. We've had in the series, in the first weekend, we did a flyover of what grace is really like, and then in weeks two to five, we, we drove in a little deeper. Today I want to do another flyover of just the benefits of being people of grace. So much has been extended to you in favor from the Lord it's now our opportunity to give it as a gift as well uh, to other people. Grace really is unmerited favor. That's the biblical definition. It's the practical one. It's the one we know. It's unmerited favor. In Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, uh, would you read it out loud with me? Read it together, would you? For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Your life is going to be driven by something. Something. Why not have it be driven, really, by this grace? Grace is a gift. It is really not a goal that can be achieved. It's not something you can earn. Grace is not something you're working on. You're not, you're not striving for grace. No, Grace is not something you're going to achieve. It's going to be a gift you receive. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's a gift. All you can do is receive the gift. So what if your life received the gift of grace? What if your life and your, your whole being received this grace and now it's driven by this grace? What would a grace-driven life be like? What if you received it and, and then you were able to share it with others? What if you responded with whatever life throws at you with with a new kind of grace, because we are so blessed with the unmerited favor of God, you can't get over it. I've told you this illustration before, but it bears repeating. When I was a kid, 
We, we had these fire hydrants down the street from our house. We had one in particular, it was just a few houses down. Every summer they'd open it up and run some water through it, make sure it was working, and you know, kind of get the rusty water out. And so, and every summer they would tell us, don't do this. And every summer we would run and try to drink out of the fire hydrant. And our lips would fly across the street, you know, because it's just water just flowing out. And then we, oh, it's not working. You know, our lips would be all like, and then one neighbor kid would always get it in the ear, you know, just like, Koosh. like he'll, he won't hear it till Labor Day now. He's, he's gone. That ear's gone. And so then we'd run home, get our bikes, and then we'd ride our bikes through, because we'd be, you know, the fire hydrants going, like, I can do it, I can do it, bam. You know, nobody ever could ride through that, because it's just, well, I just a force of water. And we were just thinking, this is like the Grand Canyon. You know, this is, this is the incredible amount of water. And, and we just loved it. You know, that's the kind of level that grace comes at you. you just, you're just, when you get knocked over, you're on your bike, and you, you skin yourself, and you still get up and do it again. You know, you'd be bleeding, and it didn't matter, because you, you'd get back in line and ride your bike through, and the, because you were going to be the one who's going to get it because it was it was overwhelming and you just be soaked, water would just go everywhere, you know, and and that's the way grace is for us. Think of it like this: if that doesn't touch you, think of it like God owning the biggest truck you can imagine, and He drives by and He goes, "I'm gonna I'm gonna give you some grace. Stand right there." And He drives by, and then He goes beep 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 beep, and He backs up. And then you then you see it. Oh my goodness. And then he opens the hatch. Beep, beep, beep. Grace, that's what's poured over you. Think of it that way, would you? Because that's the kind of grace that he has towards us. This unmerited kind of favor we'll never deserve, we'll never earn it. But there are some huge benefits if you'll just receive it. Number one, grace gives us staying power for life's challenges. Second Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. But he says, and this is the Apostle Paul saying, the Lord says to me and says to you and me, my grace is sufficient. Even when you go through life's challenges, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. In other words, when you get into trouble, it's grace that's going to get you out. You're going to see perspective. You're going to have a perspective that only God can give you, and that's why you're actually in the problem. He's not going to take away all the problems because then you would not trust him for grace. He'll give you this incredible grace and in the meantime, he offers that grace to you. He doesn't solve the problem. He keeps you in the problem in order for you to lean in and find his grace really is sufficient. Grace gives us staying power. Number two, grace allows us to see the, the real kindness of God. Ephesians chapter 2, you're in verses 8 and 9, back up to 6 and 7. And God raised up with Christ and seated us up with Christ and seated him at the with the heavenly realms, with, Jesus, with Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace. Get that? He is showing the incomparable riches of his grace, just how rich, how wonderful it is, and that is expressed, how is it expressed? In kindness. How does he demonstrate his grace? In kindness. So what does God do when he is extending grace to you? You see it as kindness. And it, that kindness is embodied in Christ Jesus. There will be moments in your life, maybe not days, maybe not weeks, maybe not years, probably not, but there will be moments when you know you have total undeserved favor from the Lord in rich form in the incomparable riches of his grace, verse 7. And when you see that and you experience it in that moment, 
It'll become a sacred moment for you because you know the Lord is being super kind to you. And it will be a holy moment for you. It won't be for anybody else, but it will be for you. And it will in turn allow you then to be kind to other people because you have received the gift of grace and you know the kindness of the Lord. It gives you margin in your life to be kind with other people, margin in your life to be patient with other people, to give other people an opportunity to believe the best in them and hope for the best. Because you've been touched by grace, now you gift them with grace. That's a wonderful thing. Grace allows us to see the kindness of God our Savior. Number three, grace communicates love, which brings encouragement and hope. 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 16 and 17. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us by his grace, get this, he loves us by his grace. What does he give us? He gave us eternal encouragement and good hope. Stop there. He gives us eternal encouragement. How would you like to have, like, I, Oh, you know, I, I met the Lord, and he gave me an encouragement. Oh, good. How long is that going to last? Well, like, um, eternity. <laughs> and if it ever runs low, that's okay, because I have hope backing it up. Is that cool or what? You get this? So you see, it's his grace, his unmerited favor towards us. It gives to us this encouragement that will not run out only to be outdone by hope. And that encouragement in of our hearts encourages our own hearts, get this, the end of verse 17, to every good deed, every good word. In other words, it changes the way we act, it changes the way we talk. It changes our whole attitude. It's almost as if one tumbles onto the next. Number four, grace provides the path to holiness. The path to holiness. Some of these could very well be whole s- sermons uh, Titus chapter 2, verses 11, 12, and 13. I talked to you earlier in the series that the series could go 16 or 18 weeks. This one passage could be a whole sermon. Titus 2, 11 to 13. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. Stop there. The grace of God appears and it offers salvation where? To all people. Wow. If ever you wondered. I wonder if it covers everybody. Oh, yeah. All's pretty much All. It's like pretty close to 100%, right? That grace is, is sufficient to save everyone, and it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. Now stop there. What, in verse 12, what's the it referring to? Go back to verse 11. What is it? For the grace that has appeared offers salvation, and it is the grace. And it's, the God, it's God's grace that teaches us to say no to the very things that will make us self-destruct. Get this. That grace melts our hearts and helps us see our own destructive patterns of behavior. It's not the, the stomping mean. It isn't the accountability. It isn't the, dogged, it isn't the dogged stuff about life that makes us change. Not for, for long. We'll change for a bit, but not for long. It is the grace of God that teaches us to say no to ungodliness, to worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. Um, you want to overcome bad habits and addictive sinful behaviors. You want to unknot the, the, the knots in your own family tree. If you come from a family, and most people do somewhere 
come from a family. People don't just appear on the earth. You come from somewhere. Thank you. You have a family. <laughs> Hallelujah. Yeah. Nothing will melt your heart quite like knowing the Lord can undo the knots in your family tree. Every family tree has knots in them. You're saying, my family tree is all knots. It's all knots. Yeah, that's okay. You know what you can do? You can apply the grace of God to your life and it becomes a new sprig, a new branch, a new pattern of behavior that's not quite so knotted. And it, it's the grace of God that will teach you to say no to ungodly things and to things that will be self-destructive in their passions. Nothing will melt your heart quite like knowing God is out for your good. Nothing will melt your heart like that. Number five, grace is our, is our antidote to bitterness. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. This is another Hebrews 12, verse 15. It could be another whole message. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God. Don't, in other words, get the full dose. Make sure it hits every corner of your heart and life. Why? Because if you don't, what's going to happen? Bitterness will hang out. It'll grow a weed there. It'll take root. And that bitterness will spread just like weeds do. And, and it will defile not just yourself, trouble you. It'll affect you, but it'll affect many other people around you. One of the signs that we fall short of the grace of God is our own bitterness, our own angst. Our anger, jealousy, hatred, strife, comparisons, perfectionism, all of that, that, those are, that right there is an evidence that the grace of God has not permeated every corner of our hearts. And it will spread, here's what a weed does, it will spread and entangle and, and then take down the good stuff of your life. And so what you want to do is make sure that the grace of God has full coverage in your life. And in the end, because if you don't do that, in the end, the bitterness will take over. It will trouble you, but it will defile other people as well. It'll affect people around you. And that's why it's so important that you make sure you, your heart is creating me a clean heart, O oh Lord. Renew a right spirit within me. I, I want to make sure I don't carry with me a spirit, a root of bitterness. Number six, grace is the added bonus when we don't choose pride. James chapter 4, verse 6. But he gives us more grace. That is why the scripture says, God opposes the proud but gives favor. Again, that's the word grace. He gives favor, grace, to the humble. I hope you get that. He gives us more grace. Now, if you want to take the way of, go back to the text again, if you want to take the way of pride, he will oppose you. He'll take you down. But if you humble yourself, Right? If you humble yourself, he'll extend more grace. He'll actually give you grace. I don't always watch the news. Um, this week I did. Uh, any of you ever get seasons in your life where you just go, okay, no more news for a while. I'm toxed out. You know, can't take the toxicity. But um, I, I like to stay abreast of what's happening, and I want to have enough news to be aware. And um, there was a news piece that came out this last week that was really significant. And it just illustrates, he opposes the proud, he gives grace to the humble. The story went out uh, like this. It, was, it came from the Southern Baptist Convention, which is a denomination, it's probably the, one of the largest, if not the largest, one of the largest denominations in the U.S., if not in the world. 
They had a convention a week or two ago. And by the way, if you're new to South Potomac, even if you've attended here a year or five, you may not know it, but we are not Southern Baptists. We're not anything. We're, we're just kind of Bible. We, you ever gone to a store where everything's generic? That would be us. Okay? We aren't even Cheerios. We're round O things. Okay? We have no actual trade name. So, so anyway, we just read the Bible and study it, take it to heart, encourage each other, and, and then go off and do our thing, you know, in the week. So we're, I, we've never been Southern Baptist or, and don't have any intention. I've never been Southern Baptist myself, although I have Southern Baptist friends. They're good people. They're, they're nice people, and, and you may know some. Uh, but, but the Southern Baptist Convention, if you know anything about them, there's thousands and thousands of churches, but they were started with a root of bitterness, with the angst of pride. I don't know if you knew this or not. In the 1800s, guess how it started? Over the Civil War, over the issue of slavery. And there were Baptist churches everywhere all over the country, but the ones in the South wanted to keep slavery, and they believed in Jesus, and they believed the Bible, and they preached Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and trusting him, and all that. They were just white supremacists along the way. Something happened. And we don't know what happened, but then they all decide they're going to start their own convention, their own Baptist well, they go to war, and they lose the war. And so the, the states stay together after incredible loss and in, in anguish of our own nation, and it's a blight to our own nation. But at the end of that war, now you have a whole denomination that's a denomination of losers because since they've lost, now they're angry, and they're going to hold in that resentment, and sure enough, that's what they did. And God opposes the proud. you understand this from James 4? but he'll give grace to the humble. And it stayed that way with them for generations. And finally, umpteen years ago, they said, this is foolishness. We send people all over the world to preach the gospel, and yet we won't cross the street to a person of another color or another language. We're the idiots in this. We have sinned. And they began to repent of their sin. And they tried to make it right. And they tried to undo years and years of what we would call institutional racism. They tried to undo, undo it in their churches. And to their credit, they began to do it. And their pastors began to talk to pastors of color, minority churches. They began to do events together. And they actually did acts of compassion. Because the, the convention, the Southern Baptist Convention, was so large, had thousands of churches, it had a bucket of money they could give to, to relief projects when there was a desperate situation, a flood or a fire or anything else, they could, they could act in compassion. Then they began, they said, we could do more than this. They began to hand out curriculum because they had publishing houses. They began to print Bible materials in non-English speaking languages, like in Spanish and Portuguese, Vietnamese, other in Korea, South Korea, Korean languages. And they began to write in other languages not for worldwide use, but just for churches in the U.S. that didn't speak English. And then instead of selling it to those churches, they just started giving it away as their way of saying, we really mean business. We believe Jesus loves everyone. And they were trying to work this out, but it was excruciatingly long and hard, and it took decades to overcome it. Now, I tell you that to say this. Today, the Southern Baptist Convention is not, it is, the, one of the most, if not the most diverse denomination in the country, if not the world. They have more people groups, more languages than any denomination in the United States as far as we know. 
Um, some of you know I, I have a real good friend in Chicago, um, Victor. His real name is Manuel. He's Mexican born and raised. And he would say to me things like, uh, we, we, when we were living in Chicago, he'd say, when you get to the Rio Grande, you're only halfway to my house. <laughs> oh my gosh, I think he's losing right across the border. Oh no. No, when you get to the river, you're halfway. Which I'm going, that's Panama, isn't it? I mean, I mean, that's forever away. He goes, yeah, I live in South Mexico. And uh, so Victor, and Victor did awful things to me. He called himself a Christian, but he would take me to restaurants where I couldn't read the menu. And he, he fed me unthinkable things. <laughs> unthinkable things. But I, I never got any disease. And you know why? Because years earlier, I had, I had drank water out of this fire hydrant. <laughs> and... I was immune to everything after that. So anyway, so Victor would feed me this. He would order and then laugh, <laughs> evil laugh, you know. And uh, and so anyway, uh, one time uh, Victor took me into this downtown city of Chicago, and and he went in a building that was the Southern Baptist had planted a church, and they, this church had seven languages in it, seven. You would walk down the hall, and you, there, was, there was Vietnamese. I remember there was a Vietnamese congregation, a Korean congregation. The, uh, there was a small English-speaking congregation that was, looked like world, um, it, it kind of looked like in the United Nations. It, it, was, it was not a white congregation. It was multiracial, but it was English-speaking, but it wasn't the largest. The largest was Spanish-speaking. And I, I remember walking down the hall, and, and seven languages, and I said to Victor, how do you know what classroom to go in? I mean, I, where do you go to church? He goes, you just walk down the hall till you understand it. <laughs> oh, this is the room, and they, they'd walk in. Ah. I tell you that to say, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And the people who opposed uh, a multiracial, multilingual God loves the entire world and Jesus paid, he extends grace to the entire world. Those people who opposed that, they found out God's not pleased with that and they swung the other way and became the initiators of grace to all people. Well, I tell you that to say this in the news this week. The Southern Baptist Convention met a week ago and when they met, all the news media showed up thinking there's going to be a story again. And sure enough, they, they make the news, and I'm thinking, oh, I hope it's not bad, because media can do that. It can hurt you bad. And, he, and they had a proposal on the floor, and, the, floor, and the, the proposal was, we don't believe the Confederate flag bespeaks of our history. It's really a war flag. It was for the Confederate army. It's a Confederate army flag. The war is over. You need to stop flying the flag. So that was the proposal on the floor. Well, just when they opened that proposal, a former president of the Southern Baptist Convention got up. His name is James Merritt. Pastors in Atlanta, Duluth, uh, Georgia. He stands up and I'm thinking, oh no, this can't go well. The news me is watching. And he starts by saying, I have two great-great-grandfathers who fought in the Confederate War. 
One of them died, and he tells where the, one of his great-great-grandfathers died. I'm thinking, oh no, here we go. The South rises again. You know, it's not going to go well. And he says then, with my two grandfathers who fought in the Confederate War, I wish they had thought and acted differently. He said, my allegiance, I'm under a different flag. I am under the flag of the cross of Jesus Christ, under a greater kingdom that will never go away. And it's time that we put away this, this flag deal. And he, he's actually strengthened the proposal and asked for an amendment of such. And he said, my ancestry was wrong. I found it interesting. He decided his faith in Jesus Christ, the grace that was extended to him, was more important to him than his history, his roots, his family, his geography. He lived in Georgia, it would be a southern state, or his politics. All of that took secondary place to his total allegiance, first and foremost, to Christ. And I was studying this passage in James when that came up on my YouTube because this was happening. And I, and I look, because you know that I can do two or three things at the same time. I actually do better when I'm doing two or three things at the same time. Right now, I'm actually making a grocery list while I'm talking to you. <laughs> so, right, stuff I have to do later today. And when I, I saw that, I thought, oh my gosh. The Lord opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And here's a guy who could have said, well, my heritage is such that I could always hate so-and-so, or do, and I'd be okay with that. And he gave all that up. And you know what I think is going to happen? I think the Lord's going to continue to bless that. Because the Lord opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Well, one more, number seven. Grace is our path to Christ-likeness. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. But grow in grace and in knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory, both now and forever. Amen. In other words, it's done. What if, get this, what if we pursued grace the same way we pursue knowledge? Think about it for a moment. There's a kid, he's like 14 years old. Well, Gradian, eighth grade, where are you in grace? About eighth grade. What if, we, what if we pursued grace just like we do knowledge? What if we said, I, I'm going for a degree in grace? What, what if we went to school on grace? How cool would that be? You know where we would end up? We would end up but growing in grace and in knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We would be looking like Christ upon graduation. What a way to go to heaven. Grace is the great motivator towards not only doing good and being good and having a good life. It gives us grace. When we pursue grace, it offers more grace because we are humbled by it, but then it also challenges us to grow and it really leads us closer to God. So whatever became of grace, whatever happened, I'll tell you what happened. If Satan in his plot against Christians can make you look ungracious, your message loses its vitality and veracity. It, it loses its authenticity. Authenticity. It cannot stand up when it loses grace. So Satan, since he can't take you down, he just makes your message look foolish. But what would it be like if, 
if we were the people of grace, and that's the way people described us, I know them. They're very kind-hearted, always quick to forgive. I wonder if they've been forgiven of something even greater. They're so patient. They're so gentle in their response. So gentle. Okay, one more story, and then we're going to pray. My wife, and I love her to the moon and back, my wife has a Kindle. I don't. I think you ought to read a book. Cry out loud. Can I get an amen? Yeah? But my wife has this Kindle. It's kind of like, I, I told the story in first service, and she came up to me, and I, cause I said, it has like 25 books. She said, try 250 books. It's, it's, she has a lot of books on the Kindle. I had no idea. And uh, I like paper books because I like a yellow marker, you know, and I, I like reading a book on the computer, but I put the yellow marker on the screen. It doesn't go well for me, so you'll think about that later. So this week, um, I come home Thursday night, and uh, she said, uh, dinner's ready. We're about ready to have supper, uh, but she said, you need to know I, I, I lost my Kindle today. I had it this morning. She, I remember reading it in the, the living room, and I had it up in the bedroom, and I carried it to the living room, and I, I don't know where it is. They said, well, let's eat dinner. We had dinner. We went looking for the Kindle. Couldn't find it. We, we start tearing into the house. I mean, by 8 o'clock, we're looking. By 9 o'clock, we're, we're tipping stuff over. I mean, I'm opening every cupboard. I'm like, did you go out to the freezer in the garage? I mean, where have you been? What have you done? You know, and we're looking for the Kindle. Can't find it. And um, finally about 10 o'clock, I mean, we're wound up. You know how they say he's wrapped around the axle? You ever heard that phrase? That's where we were. So finally, said, let's stop it. Let's stop looking. But I keep looking without acting like I'm looking. Because I need, I need to just get ready for bed. I'm still looking. I'm in the bathroom opening cabinets. And, you know, what are you doing in there? I'm just brushing my teeth. Just lying to you. And then, so we crawl into bed. We read for a while. But she can't read with a Kindle because she doesn't have a Kindle. So she has to read a paperback book right out of Little House on the Prairie moment here. I mean, it's feeling really old. So, so anyway, we turn out the lights. Ten minutes later, she's back up. I go, where are you going, hon? I know where she's gone. She says, I can't sleep. I go, oh, that's too bad. Oh, and I'm thinking, she can't find the Kindle. And I, I think I know where the Kindle is. Because Thursday, she cleaned out some bags to contribute to the compassion pile that's in the back here. I'm thinking, they're in a, you know, she's sorting clothes. I'll bet they landed in a bag, and they're in that pile back there. And so in the middle of the night, I'm going to get up and come to church and <laughs> dig through bags looking for this thing. It's going to be embarrassing, but I'll find it. And she said, I can't sleep. So she, we, she goes downstairs and says, I, I, uh, okay, I'll get up. I, so I guess I said, you can't find the Kindle, can you? And she says, I can't. And she's really bugging me. Okay, okay, okay. But this time I'm thinking, in the morning, I'll buy another Kindle, load all the books back on, she will never know. <laughs> Except all my books would be like popular mechanics and woodworking. Hers is sense and sensibility. So, so anyway, we, look, we, we finally can't find, we finally go to bed. In the morning... By the way, we found the Kindle. Um, she just pulled the tablecloth back to do something because we, we have a tablecloth on the dining room and we have a plastic wrap. For some other reason, we just 
just pulled that, and the Kindle was under there. It was right there. So we find the Kindle, and, and we scream Saturday morning, oh, we found the Kindle. Hey, great. How weird would it be if Saturday afternoon I'm walking through the house and Wanda says to me, what are you doing? And I say to her, well, I'm looking for the Kindle. How, would that be weird? I think it would be. And if you don't think that's weird, that's weird that you don't think, because she would say, we found the Kindle, Dave. You can stop now. Let me ask you this. Why is it so many Christians are still looking for grace? Why is that? I think it's because, one of two things, either you haven't found it yet, you haven't received the gift of grace, or you don't know that you have it. You're looking for it everywhere. Have you ever been in the office and a guy does this? And then he's, you ask, what are you doing? And he says, I'm looking for my glasses. And you're going, oh yeah, have a good time with that. Hey, dude, have you ever had that? I've never done that myself. I did that with goggles in the garage, actually. You know, I wear goggles, and then, and then I, I can't find them, so then I go get another pair of goggles and put them on only to find out, my gosh, she's got goggles everywhere. <laughs> goggles. But they're right on you. Understand this. If, if you have trusted Christ, the grace is there. It's right there. You just don't know it. So apply the grace to your life. Enjoy the grace. Tell yourself the truth about the grace. Look at the benefits of it. If you've never received the gift of grace, then, then receive it. That's the word. All right, let's bow together for prayer. And let's stand as we pray. Lord, God of heaven, the amazing grace truly is amazing. It saves a wretch like us. We were lost, now we're found. We were blind, now we see. Thank you for the grace that is ours in Jesus Christ. We thank you that you gifted us this grace and you, you did it richly, abundantly, over and over and over again. And Lord, um, for the people in the room today who just say, you know, God, I, I need to receive the gift of grace Here's your prayer. Just make it yours now. God in heaven, I know I'm a sinner. I don't deserve it. I need your grace. I need Christ in my life. I need forgiveness of my sins. I need your grace. I need a home in heaven. I need help here on earth. Save me. That's your prayer. He promises. He loves you. He's already paid the price for the sin. So he's more than willing to put it on his tab if you'll just come to him. And to the rest of us, Lord, may we be the most kind people in the world because kindness has been extended to us. May we be the most patient people in the world because patience has been our experience with someone with, with a greater debt in patience. And forgiveness and believing the best and hope and encouragement because we have gotten it from the very perfect one. We thank you for Jesus Christ, the gift of grace. May we be the most gracious people who've received the gift, who give it away freely, knowing it's eternal, it'll never run out. 
May we be the most gracious people in the world we know. And we pray this in the name of Christ, our risen Savior. And the church says, amen. Amen. Amen.